2 Corinthians 11. We'll be looking at the second half of the chapter tonight, but let's do read through the entire chapter together. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I, may, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that um, we are welcome yet again to come to a throne of grace. We thank you, Father, for Christ and for his consistent, faithful care of us, his perfections, his glory that is solitary and incomparable. God, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage tonight to want to glory in him and him alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember from the first half of chapter 11, Paul feels like he's being forced to boast in ways that he does not want to boast because of the ways that the false teachers have boasted. They've boasted in the flesh. They've boasted about things that really do not matter spiritually, do not commend them to Christ, do not uh, make them more fit to teach anyone. And unfortunately, the Corinthians have been impressed by that. And Paul now risks not addressing that and letting the false teachers say, see, you know, we really are better than he is. Um, so he addresses it. And he is uh, so bothered by having to do so that he spends a good portion of the chapter defending why he feels like he must do it. And the actual boasting is really very short. Last week we looked at the fact that his love for them, his, his jealousy for them, that the, really the nature of the ministry, uh, of how God had worked through his weakness, and yet they despised that, were offended by it. All of that uh, has kind of come together and pushed his hand to do what he doesn't want to do. We continue to see a bit of the defense tonight and then the actual boasting. And as I mentioned last week, he boasts for just a moment in the ways that these people are boasting. And then he immediately runs back to what he's been boasting in all along, a real reason to boast. And that is the weakness that he's experienced and how God has used that. So as we begin tonight looking at this passage in verses 16 through 21, or the first half of 21... 
he insists again that what he's about to do is foolishness. He tells us plainly in verse 18, many are boasting according to the flesh. I will boast also. And how glad they are to tolerate that from the false teachers. And so he expects to tolerate it from him also. But what seems striking to me in these verses is how distorting sin is. Because the people, their thinking is off. They are impressed by the wrong things. Paul is bragging, if you will, about his pedigree. Not because he wants to brag about it, but because that's what they're impressed by. And to gain a hearing from them so he can point them back to what really matters, he has to address this distortion. And sin does distort. It promises what it cannot deliver, and then it distorts things. It makes us see things, you know, it's like putting on glasses that aren't made for you. They're not the right prescription for you. And so everything is out of focus. We look at what we should see clearly and we, we can't see it. One of the Bible words for sin is iniquity. And it speaks of this, this twisting, the, the corrupting power of sin. How sin perverts And among the things that it perverts is our perception of reality. We begin to believe things that aren't true about God, about ourselves, about others. And the Corinthians, who are professing believers at least, have moved from the glories of Christ that they've seen through Paul's preaching to the false teachers, and now they're impressed, which seems like a kind of madness. And so there's this distortion The problem that exists here, though, is is not God. God had been presented to them previously as glorious. He's not stopped being glorious. And it's not as if they have looked and seen all that there is to see about God. And so, you know, we've seen it. What's next? And I don't think the problem is even familiarity. Like a person, you know, who lives next to the Grand Canyon and they see it every day and they walk out their door and there it is. And they think, yeah, there it is, you know, and people travel from all over the place to look at this and they think, wow. And the person that lives there just says, yeah. But that's not, I don't think, even the issue here or not primarily. The problem here is more sinister than that. It is sin. The Corinthians have bought into a lie. And buying into that lie, they're impressed with things that really aren't that impressive. And looking away from what really is impressive. They are operating by the wrong standard. We could say that they're they're drawing wrong comparisons. Here are the false teachers coming to them with letters of commendation, boasting in each other, you know, uh, Comparing each other to themselves. Look how impressive I am. Instead of pointing to anything objective. And so the Corinthians have a kind of wisdom. That's a false wisdom. That's 
distorted. It's so distorted. In verse 20, he speaks of how they tolerate enslavement. Paul had not come to enslave them. Christ frees them. He, Paul has said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But they tolerate enslavement. The false teachers have enslaved them. They're devouring them. They're taking advantage of them. He even speaks of them hitting them in the face. Some think that this is a metaphor for just humiliation. But either way, they tolerate it. And seem glad about it. Now, we could read a verse like verse 20 and think, well, I wouldn't tolerate that. I wouldn't put up with that. But what do you put up with because of sin? How has sin distorted your view of God or of reality so that you put up with things that you wouldn't have put up with before? As you've moved away from Christ and from His loveliness, you've become impressed with other things and perhaps you put up with just not walking with the nearness of the Lord that you knew before. And it's kind of become a new normal for you. And it shouldn't be normal. Or perhaps you put up with anger or bitterness. Or degree of lust that once before you saw as reprehensible. And you put it away. But now you've embraced it again. Or greed or covetousness. And because you've bought into a lie, you see it as all right. It's, it's kind of become a respectable sin for you, if you will. Even though it is one of those things for which Christ has come to free you. Sin does distort. But God brings clarity. But you won't have that clarity with a heart full of pride. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. Or the New American Standard translates, this, translates it this way. Cease striving and know that I am God. You know, stop fighting. Stop resisting. Humble yourself and know that I am God. Or Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, He is good. But the Lord calls you to taste and see. But to come and to taste, you will have to humble yourself. We have to put away sin. We have to put away pride. But we are often so proud and so sinful by nature that um, we who have tasted and seen become impressed with things that we shouldn't be impressed about. And it's, it really says something about the nature of sin. And perhaps also something about the deceptive tactics of the enemy, which we saw briefly last week in verse 3 when Paul speaks of the Corinthians and his jealousy for them, he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Deceived. Crafty. Led astray. 
And surely if we're looking at anything as more glorious than God or more impressed with anything rather than God, we have been led astray by deceitful thinking. Not only does Paul speak about this um, distorting nature of sin, you, you look at these things and you tolerate them, you are impressed by them, but it's also not just a distortion of sin, but there is kind of an insanity about it. In verses 21 through 23, as he moves to speak about um, the things that he's going to boast in you know, because he feels he must, he says in verse 23, are, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. This is insanity to talk this way. As he addresses the things that they are impressed by and stoops to boasting the things that they would have him boast of, you'll notice that he points to kind of his, his heritage, his pedigree. In verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So are, am I. If that's how they want to compare themselves and put themselves forward as people that you should listen to, well, I have that same pedigree. They're that? Okay, I am too. Are, are they Hebrews? You know, here's, here's an ethnic identity. Well, I'm a Hebrew. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And the idea could be a couple of things, two or three things. One, it could mean that he's, he's full-blooded Hebrew, not like Timothy, who was, whose father was Greek. It could be that. It could be that he was a person who is, is immersed in Hebrew culture to the degree that, unlike a lot of Hebrews who may have grown up in other parts of the world, the Hellenistic Hebrews, he knows Hebrew and Aramaic. He, he knows these languages well. More than that, he knows the culture. We know that he, he was, he, he's a Roman citizen. He's born elsewhere, but perhaps he spent his life growing up there. He knows his stuff. He, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. So if that's where their boast is, and if that's what you're impressed by, okay, well, I, I'm that too. He moves from that and he says, are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Whether this is, is national identity, religious identity, whatever, whichever he's pointing to here, he is identified with that also. He's identified with the people of God, with all the rights and privileges that come with being that. Not, not as a Christian people, but the Old Testament Israelite. And there were advantages that came with that. He wrote to the Romans in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Speaking of the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. In chapter 3 of Romans, verses 1 and 2, he poses the question, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And his answer, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So there was an advantage, but whatever advantage came with that, he had received that advantage also. He is not um, 
less than the false teachers who are Israelites. They are descendants of Abraham. Me too. And so here are all these things that they're pointing at. As if this is to impress the Corinthians and give them an audience with them. Over and above the Apostle Paul, who's been a spiritual father to them. But Paul answers each of these and says, well, well, I'm that also. So that's not really a ground for boasting. Now, as he points to these things, and he calls this foolish boasting, and and, um, even as, as he begins to make these comparisons in verse 21, he says, I speak in foolishness. Paul is not saying... That he has no love for his heritage. Like, I despise my heritage. He's not saying he has no love for his country. He has great love for his countrymen. You know, he, in the book of Romans, speaks of being willing to be accursed if he could see them come to Christ. So that's not what he's saying. But he does mean that none of these things could make him righteous. None of these things commend him to God. None of these things fit him for ministry. If his job were to promote tourism in Israel, then his pedigree may have been of great value. But as a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a child of God, these things had absolutely no value. So again to the Philippians in chapter 3, he can say, Although I I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of, Of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish. So that I may gain Christ. So all the things that the the false apostles appear to be boasting in and hoping in. Are things that Paul says are, are rubbish. In this area of knowing God. It's rubbish. It's of no value whatsoever. No one is automatically a Christian because they're a Hebrew or an Israelite or a child of Abraham, physically. Any more than anyone's automatically a Christian because they're American or Baptist or because their mom and dad was. And again, the problem here is not simply that the false teachers boast in the flesh. I mean, what else do they have to boast in? They're false teachers. The problem here is that so many in Corinth professing to be believers have become enamored with them. They are so out of sorts spiritually that this boasting is attractive to them. Oh, yeah. Those guys are pretty impressive. Even if it leads to their humiliation before the false teachers to being enslaved. The Corinthians have bought the lie that the false teachers have given them. That Paul is not fit to be an apostle because he's humiliated by suffering. 
Meanwhile, the Corinthians are humiliated by the false teachers. It is an insanity for anyone to be impressed with the creation rather than the creator. To be impressed with things that God says don't matter when they've seen, heard the gospel. God can certainly humble them. I was thinking earlier today about uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, proud, has a vision. And Daniel interprets the vision for him. Verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time, probably seven years, will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Evidently, he didn't do that. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I... Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Um, God brought Nebuchadnezzar to his senses. He should have been able to see the glory of God. He should have been able to recognize that there is a king above me and you know, sovereignty has been given to me. The right to rule or the ability to rule has been given to me. But he didn't. But how much more is it true for the Christian the Christian ought to recognize that there's one above him and that there is one who rules over him and that whatever you have is the gift of God. Your strength, your skill, your accomplishment, whatever it is, it's because God has allowed you to do that and he can take it away like that. To think otherwise, it's insanity. Now, Paul has boasted a bit in his heritage as they've boasted, but it's as if he can't stand it. And so he turns and he begins boasting in the very kinds of things that they hate to hear, that they think discredit him. And in verse 23 again, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And he begins giving us his list. But notice that here, Paul goes from comparing himself to them as an equal to insisting that he's actually in a position of superiority. They're not servants of Christ. They may claim to be servants of Christ, but he's already told us they're false apostles. They are deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, having made this declaration, are they servants of Christ? Far more, far more. How would you expect him to, if you weren't reading ahead, how would you expect him to prove it? I mean, what kind of things would you offer as evidence? You, you might say, you know, I've written more letters to churches. I've penned more books of the New Testament. Which, of course, was not put together yet. But uh, I, I've started more churches. I've preached to more people or to more people groups. I, I've traveled more missionary miles than you. I, I've done all these things. He could have listed accomplishments like that. But he doesn't. During Paul's time, there was... A, uh, a way of writing a eulogy, which was not a death notice. You know, often our eulogies are like, this person has passed away, let me tell you how great they were. But I'm speaking of a, a way of, of putting out 
uh, kind of a declaration of, of how great I am, you know. And so you could describe your exploits. Caesar Augustus or Augustus Caesar did one of these. And I'll probably butcher this pronunciation, but res gesti divi Augusti, something like that. And in this, he carefully lists some of his accomplishments. He includes numbers like, you know, I, I did this once. Three times I did this and many other times I did the other thing, you know. And he lists his accomplishments, giving examples and how many times this happened. And this was inscribed on various monuments throughout different provinces of the Greco-Roman world. So it was probably something that Paul would have seen. And Augustus was not the only person to do this. It was something that went on in that period of time. Paul appears to have taken the pattern of these eulogies, but instead of giving a list of his victories and accomplishments, he gives us a list of his sufferings and losses, moments of shame and defeat. He argues for the authenticity and superiority of his service to Christ from his weaknesses, not from his strengths. He begins his statement with a general list of sufferings in verse 23. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Here's his claim of, here's how you know I'm an authentic minister of Christ and superior to you. As a minister of Christ or a servant of Christ, I've been beaten more times, often in danger of death, more labor, more imprisonments. And none of the super apostles could match what he's saying to them, and none of them would want to. I mean, he's speaking of insanity. They're probably looking at him thinking insanity also. Paul lists some specific sufferings in verses 24 and 25. Five times. I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. The lashes that he mentions. This was a uniquely Jewish punishment that was handed out in the synagogue. Deuteronomy 25 gives rules for this punishment. You couldn't give more than 40 lashes. They often stopped at 39. It was painful and it was humiliating. And interestingly, none of Paul's whippings are listed in the book of Acts. Which, among other things, tells us that Luke is selective in what he tells us. And so we don't have all the exploits of Paul in the book of Acts. So, So none of these five different lashings is mentioned. The book of Acts, though, does give us what we often see as a pattern for Paul going into a new Gentile town. Do you know what this pattern is? The first place he often went was to the Jewish synagogue. There were people there who had some biblical background, who had some interest in God, and he would go there and be given the opportunity to speak, and he would start pointing them to Christ. Sometimes the people heard him. Many times they didn't hear him. 
since these whippings, these lashings, floggings, whatever you would call them, are something that, that came from the synagogue rulers, where do you think they occurred? I mean, it seems reasonable that he goes to a town and preaches the gospel, and their response is, beat him. But it doesn't happen once. He gets up and he goes to another town. Here it comes again. 39 lashes, five times, 195 lashes. He's endured and he keeps going and he keeps going. Which seems to give some credence to his professed love for his own countrymen, doesn't it? He speaks of being beaten with rods on three occasions. This was more of a Roman punishment. It was not supposed to be administered to Roman citizens. Although from what I've read during Paul's time, that was often overlooked. This involved being stripped and beaten. It was humiliating as well as painful. We only have one occurrence of this kind of a beating listed in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were beaten in Philippi. But at least two other times, at the time of the writing of 2 Corinthians, he'd been beaten with rods. Stoning. Acts chapter 14 tells us about that. In Lystra, Acts 14, 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Someone has suggested that perhaps the reason he survived that was because it was more of a mob action and not a judicial one. There was not anyone checking to make sure. But 39 lashes, five times, three times beaten with rods, stoned once. Is it any wonder that he could write to the Galatians from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Paul mentions here he was shipwrecked three times. And because of the writing, the data of 2 Corinthians and more information in the book of Acts afterwards, the shipwreck in Acts 27 would have been after this. So at least four times that we know about, he was shipwrecked. And one of them would have been particularly miserable as he's left adrift in the open sea. Paul moves on in verse 26 to some specific dangers. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. In all of his traveling, all of his journeys, they, they were all dangerous. And so often put him in peril. He was not traveling as a tourist and traveling into dangerous places to see the sights. He's traveling for the sake of the gospel in obedience to Christ because he's been sent. And yet as harrowing as many of these things must have been, the last one kind of stands out. In verse 26, dangers among false brethren. The book of Acts records six different Jewish plots against Paul. 
and three different encounters with the Gentiles that, that were dangerous. And as he writes to the Corinthians, surely the false apostles in Corinth would be among the false brethren that he mentions here. Dangers from these false brethren, these people who call themselves brothers, but they're not. After all, they do disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He goes on to speak of voluntary suffering in verse 27. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Much of that was because of the way he chose to live, not receiving support from like the church at Corinth, but he labored among them. And so he, he works at preaching and he works at his trade to support himself. And some of the sleepless nights would have doubtless been not just because of insomnia, but because he was at work or whether it's manual labor or, or praying for them through the night and hunger and thirst. We've seen that even though he supported himself, he was at times in need and the church at Macedonia Brought support to him. And it wasn't just. In conjunction with the church at Corinth. This was usual for him. He wrote to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9. You recall brethren. Our labor and hardship. How working night. And day. So as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel. What a contrast between Paul and the false apostles. It's the difference between really a shepherd and a hireling, isn't it? They boasted in their supposed, supposed strengths while enslaving the people and taking advantage of them. Paul boasts in his weakness so that he can lift the people up. And they despised him for it. And then in verses 28 and 29, there's one more item on his list. And that is what some have called pastoral heartache. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? We saw something of his concern for the Corinthian church earlier in chapter 7. Verse 5, as he's waiting for Titus, and remember Titus didn't arrive where he was supposed to, so he went on to Macedonia. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 7, Even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. His concern was for Titus, certainly, but it wasn't just for Titus. Titus was bringing word about whether or not the people at Corinth had repented. So it's also concern for the church. What did they say? How did they respond? Am I going to have to come and deal with it in a hard way? Or are they going to receive me as a friend? In verse 29, when he speaks of people, someone being entrapped into sin, and I do not... Uh, um, who's led into sin without my intense concern? You could translate that. 
who is entrapped into sin, and I do not burn with them. I don't, you know, he's bothered by it. How much time and energy had Paul poured into the Corinthians? This isn't his first hard letter. It's his third that we know about. He's poured a lot of energy into them. He spent a lot of time with them, 18 months on his first visit. And it's not the only church. It's not the only people he's concerned about. It's not the only place where he's spending time. Again, to the Thessalonians, after being with them for a short period of time, a fairly short period of time, and having to leave, he begins to hear troubling news. And he writes to them and he speaks to them about how he was a father to them and a mother to them and had nursed them. And in his concern for them, he writes in chapter 3 and verse 5, For this reason... When I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This weighed on him. And all of this, including this kind of capstone, he is arguing this is what commends me in a sense as a servant of Christ more so than the false apostles who are boasting about their strength and accomplishments. In verse 30, he says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And then he gives us an example in verses 31 through 33. And the example is one that he begins with an oath, as if you're not going to believe this. Verse 31, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever knows I'm not lying. What's so startling about it? He speaks of being in Damascus and being let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaping the hands of those who wanted to kill him. What's startling about it? The book of Acts records it. Chapter 9. It probably looks pretty cool on Flanagraph. And if we read it in just that kind of way, you know, you look at it and you think, well, Paul's a good guy and these bad guys are trying to get him and he gets away. Sounds good. Verse 23 of Acts 9. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening of the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now, if you turn, I'm going to turn a page. You may not have to, but look back at the first part of Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9 begins with Paul, Saul, the zealot, (laughs) with letters giving him permission to go to Damascus. And bind up those Christians. He saw the hunter. 
Saul, the man who rubs elbows with people in positions of authority, the, the high priest and the, the, uh, the folks back in Jerusalem who can give him that authority. He's converted, begins to preach, and he becomes Saul the hunted. He enters in with boldness, and he leaves through a window, lowered in a basket, stinking of fish. How humbling that must have been to one who was proud. Paul, the educated, sincere Pharisee, this man, again, who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, an up-and-comer, slinks out of Damascus like a criminal. Well, I've said that Paul has kind of adopted this style of, of eulogy. And he tops it off with this parting note. In his day, the people would have been familiar with the highest military award. An award for valor. It was given to the man who was first up the wall to face the enemy. And here's Paul saying, I'm the first man down the wall. All his enemies brag about their honors and their strengths. Paul boasts in his weakness, a weakness that led him to flee in a basket that stunk of fish. But it was also a weakness that was walking with the Lord and preaching and willing to go to the next town and face a beating or a stoning or shipwrecked. The False apostles, the super apostles, couldn't imagine boasting in something like that. What kind of things do you tend to boast in? Perceived strengths, accomplishments, heritage. If we think any of that commends us to God, what an empty and false boast it is. And really, if we think that any of those things earns us favor with God, or that we've earned those things by our own strength, or that we've deserved them, when we look at Paul, We should be a bit ashamed. Paul had asked the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians, What do you have that you've not received? 
And if you've received it as a gift from God, then how are you boasting? Paul repeatedly boasts about his weakness. Do you find it hard to talk about your weakness, much less boast about it? I, mean, I do. I think most people want to be perceived well by other people. And it just seems so counter to that, doesn't it? To say, here's the ways I'm weak. Here's how I've failed. And yet, when faced with these false teachers... Trying to win the hearts of the Corinthians. That's exactly where Paul goes. Here's how I show you that I really am following Christ. And I love you. And I love him. And I'm your servant for Christ's sake. Let me tell you about all the beatings I've gotten. For the gospel's sake. What's the answer to such foolish boasting? It can't be... An attempt to try harder. I mean, if you accomplished it, then who would get the glory, right? I mean, that's not the answer. But surely, it's, it's what we're looking at in John Owen. It's communing with the living God. It's unconditional devotion to Christ Jesus. It's following Him wherever He leads, even if it's the beatings. And it's acknowledging, not just with words, but by the way we live, what Jesus himself has told us, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we pray again that you would make us to be impressed with Christ above anything and anyone else, especially ourselves. God, forgive us for any attempt to preen or pose in your presence as if there's anything that you would be impressed about us. God, you see us completely. There's nothing hidden from your sight. Surely, God, if we gripped, if that reality gripped us, we would grovel. And it's only because Christ Himself picks us up, strengthens us, that we have any ability to move or go on. God, give us grace to humble ourselves, to look to Christ and to hope in Him and to glory in Him. To see His perfections. To make our boast in Him, we pray. In His name, Amen.